He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 4, 2021. Happy Hanukkah. Festive time of the year, the Festival of Lights. We have a special show featuring prominent Jewish author and influential, prolific columnist at the Washington Post. Her name, Jennifer Rubin. What an incredible week to have her on. We talk about the Supreme Court argument in the Mississippi case destined to eliminate Roe v. Wade, or is it? Listen to Jennifer Rubin, who is not only a great author, she is an attorney, number one in her class at Bolt Hall, Berkeley. She dissects Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Crane, Kamala Harris, and we talk about Bibi Netanyahu. We also talk about her fellow WAPO columnist, Hugh Hewitt, a guy I knew when he lived in the Denver area, and he also worked for Salem. And what the hell happened to Dennis Prager? We talk about that with Jennifer Rubin after that amazing appearance in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Our troubadour, Dave Gunders, graces us with the perfect Hanukkah song, Falling Rain, about a man enduring a stormy love relationship. That word storm comes up a lot. It's in the Hanukkah song, Rock of Ages. I try to sing it a couple times. I think I might do it in Hebrew at the end of this show. We've got a heck of a Hanukkah show for you. Enjoy, starting with Jennifer Rubin in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Jennifer Rubin. Hi, Jennifer Rubin. This is Craig, Craig Silverman. Thanks a lot for being on my podcast. No problem. Congratulations on your book, Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump, and uh, Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you. Same to you. Well, I did not know how to introduce you. First of all, I enjoyed your book. It would be a great Hanukkah present, and if you celebrate Christmas, that too, because it's written about women by one of the most important women in America right now. She is so prolific. Just in the last two days, I think you've written about, I don't know, 14 columns. It feels that way, but they're all great. How do you do it, Jen Rubin? Well, I have a lot to say, I guess. Um, It's cheaper than therapy, right? Um, In all seriousness, there is a lot going on, and uh, I can only write about a fraction of what's happening. But um, I think uh, people feel like they need to process what's going on, and hopefully I help them do that a little bit. You do. But you have the fastest processor I've ever seen. I I bet your editors don't have much to do. This is how you were number one 
in your law school class at Berkeley, a top law school. You must be gifted. I bet you finished the bar exam in about, with what, a couple hours to spare? Oh, my. You know, so long ago, I hardly remember. But uh, yes, I actually think my law degree, my law school experience and my practice of the law helped quite a bit. As a lawyer, you learn to read fast, write fast. Um, and it certainly has helped me, I think, in my career as a journalist. You are in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge right now. I've been practicing law for 40 years. You did it for a couple of decades out in Hollywood. And that's fascinating. But You've been drawn to the Washington Post, and you identify yourself as a journalist. And I I think that's cool. Uh, People would say yes, but you have a strong opinion. Why do you label yourself a journalist still? There are journalists who are on the news side, and there are journalists who are on the opinion side. Um, And one of the things I love about the New York Times is that although we offer our opinions on the opinion side, we're also expected to gather facts and do reporting. And uh, I think both those skills uh, are evident, I hope, in my book and um, also in my daily work. It is. And I think everybody should subscribe to the Washington Post. As you heard, I'm pretty darn old, but it's just in the last few years that I've found the Post and your column and just everything about that paper to be essential in this time, what, what is your motto now? Democracy dies in darkness. It's it, the Washington Post is essential. So I'm telling people, don't just get resistance for Hanukkah. Sign up for the Washington Post. Don't you think they should? Well, thank you. Uh, I would encourage them in both uh, accounts. Yes, uh, I am just could not be more proud and pleased to be part of the Washington Post. Whether it's the news side, which is all over um, both breaking stories and long-term investigations, or it's really the opinion side, which has the widest, uh, most, uh, I think, diverse uh, voices around. Um, It really is a pleasure to be associated with the Washington Post. Well, you grew up uh, partially on the East Coast near Philly, I think. Then you went to California with your family. You attended college, worked out there, East Coast, West Coast. What about the middle part of the country, Colorado? Well, I married someone from Indiana. Does that count? Sort of. I Yeah, sort of. Uh, well, I have been raised uh, and spent most of my time on the coast. Um, one of the things I loved about writing the book, actually, was talking to people from all over America, uh, interviewing people from Michigan, Alabama, Connecticut, uh, California. Um, and I think it helps uh, give me a sense of uh, that, the news obviously is made and elections are won and lost uh, all over America, not just on the coastal areas. Definitely true. But one of the uh, protagonists of your story, as it were, is uh, Kamala Harris, who's definitely from the Bay Area. And uh, I I think she's an important character, but I'm worried about her because uh, I hear about infighting and I just think there's a special ire that uh, the current Republican Party has for her, based on what, I don't know. I have to suspect it has to do with her gender and her skin color. What's going on with Kamala Harris? Being vice president is very hard. And if you strike out on your own and you do a lot of impressive things, then you're accused of trying to overshadow the president. If you simply follow his lead and nod and go out and give speeches that are designed simply to highlight him, you get the criticism that you're just a doormat uh, or that you're sort of a sycophant. Um, So it's a really hard job to begin with. And I think she has come under a huge amount of criticism. I just think the entire right-wing attack machine is as bad, if not worse, than it's always been. It thrives in social media, it thrives on Fox News and in the whole plethora of little websites um, and outlets that they commandeer. And they have uh, really made her a target. I think part of the reason is that Joe Biden is a very likable guy. And so it's very hard for them to come up with some personal attack on him. So as they often do with women and women of color, they've tried to make her seem foreign and radical and 
different. Um, and I think uh, that's been uh, their game plan from really from day one. Um, but I think ultimately she's going to be judged like Biden's going to be judged on results. Uh, how well does the economy do? How well do they recover from COVID? What is their legislative record? So the hard thing about being a vice president is that you sink or swim with the president and if he does poorly then you do poorly but the good news is if you're serving with a successful president as joe biden did with barack obama then that really is the pathway uh hopefully to the president for you i just think the attacks on her are over the top and the characterization of her is stupid or lesser i think it was you know, so much of this is born of Donald Trump. He peeled it back. He was so deliberately divisive. And the things he said and did about women, heck, you wrote a book about it. I never thought I'd see something like that in my lifetime, let alone from the president. It's shocking for baby boomers like us, isn't it? It is. And I think he so destroyed the norms of conduct um, that politicians of all stripes uh tended to abide by that it's going to be very hard to put the genie back in the bottle uh republicans and we only need to look at this uh really appalling islamophobia this open warfare against a member of congress that is going on with marjorie taylor green and warren bobert um to see really how fall how far they have fallen and how extreme they have gotten their rhetoric is so aggressive so nasty um they are no longer ashamed or even contrite about um expressions of racism and bigotry that is just all out there and people say that social media has contributed to it i agree with that but it's also coming from the people in elected office at the highest levels so if you can't get them to behave themselves, good luck trying to corral social media. And I think that is one of the lasting legacies of Donald Trump, unfortunately, and that is he's degraded our language, he's degraded our politics, he's made it fashionable to express views um, that are contrary to human decency and um, the belief that all men are created equal. And that legacy, I think, is going to far outlive him. And uh, in order to, I think, change things, you're going to have to have a Republican Party that severely and fully changes its tune. And right now, I don't see that happening. No. And I'm fourth generation Colorado, and I apologize for Lauren Boebert, you wrote about her beautifully this week, just exposing what a bigot and bad person she is. But I think she's got a personal locker next to Marjorie Taylor Greene down in Mar-a-Lago. And they're doing uh, what the boss wants, the orange boss. And it's horrific. And here we are, Hanukkah, Jewish people. And you know, a lot of people in our community say, well, what about Ilhan Omar? And I say, she's not my favorite, but I take her side against Lauren Boebert in this battle. It's not even close. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. And I think what is equally objectionable and frightful is that people in the party who do know better, who should know better, are completely intimidated. They refuse to stand up to her in large part because her protector is Donald Trump. But I think in large part because they're afraid of their own base. They've created this monster of enraged people that feel um, that white men are the great victims in American society. And they feel completely entitled to express um, the most hateful ideology. And they chalk up any complaints about it or any criticism as being, quote, politically correct. And as a result, um, really, they have dragged down the entire party. I think she is um, unhinged and ridiculous, but I would say the real culprit here is the leadership in the Republican Party. Um, Kevin McCarthy allows this to go on, and the rest of them do. Right, but and he's, he's until, not the real leader of the Republican Party. Donald Trump remains so, right? 
That is, but that's because he ceded control. Um, you know, I think um, all of these people have um, are in a shrinking machine where they get smaller and smaller by the day. I'd use the example of minority leader Mitch McConnell, who used to show some sense of independence from Donald Trump. But look at how he's followed Donald Trump's endorsement in the in the Georgia Senate race, endorsing Herschel Walker, who has a history of marital violence, um, of uh, really unhinged behavior, has no, of course, uh, experience whatsoever. And Mitch McConnell is now happily endorsing him because Donald Trump wants him. So even Mitch McConnell, who used to show uh, every once in a while a little spine, is completely under Trump's thumb. And apparently he's willing to throw away a chance at perhaps the Senate majority um, simply to satisfy Trump. And I think that's been the pattern over and over again, that the Republicans have ceded control. They have ceased to exercise any independent judgment. And they let the voters um, believe that this kind of behavior is appropriate in public life. So it gets worse and worse. And um, I don't see any end to it until they start losing elections um, by a lot um, very frequently. Well, I, I think there's one solution, and it's on the docket this historic week. What a week to have Jen Rubin, because you write about Roe v. Wade possibly going bye-bye, but it's more about... Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That's your brilliant legal mind. And it's like the dog that catches the car. What are you going to do now? Let me tell you about the Republican Party in Colorado. The chairwoman is Christy Burton Brown, who's brought the twice badly failed personhood initiative, saying, you know, from the moment of conception, that's their leader now. Lauren Boebert, She'll insult other people, but oh my God, she's so sanctimoniously pro-life. You've written about it. It's in part what your book is about. Will women put up with it? Are they, Is this the dog catching the car and now, uh-oh. Well, I think they took the case before it was apparent that the plaintiffs wanted a complete repudiation of Roe and Casey. And if the court were smart, they'd duck and say, whoops, um, we didn't realize what this case was about and send it back down, which they actually um, are entitled to do. Um, the problem with, quote, overruling Roe and Casey is that Casey really stands for a much more general principle that there are certain decisions about our lives, whether it's contraception, whether it's abortion, whether it's deciding to homeschool your children, these key personal decisions that define who we are, that government should never be able to override. And you do away with Casey and you do away with those as well. And that is, I think, not the society that most Americans want to live in. But the Supreme Court is on the precipice, I of a radical shift in constitutional law that would not only enrage women, um, but leave, I think, ordinary Americans um, really aghast at the degree to which um, this Supreme Court has countenanced um, a small minority of people to tell the rest of us how to live our lives. And I think um, we uh, should rightly be very concerned about uh, the abortion issue but I hope it doesn't get lost in the translation that this is about a host of other things as well that will affect men and women. And uh, the Supreme Court is truly radical. They seem not to be interested in precedent, whether it's Casey that's 1992 or whether it goes all the way back to Roe in the 70s. Um, they seem to be completely indifferent to um, the current public opinion, mores, um, patterns of behavior of American society. And uh, it will be interesting to see. I think they have gotten themselves in a little bit of trouble. Um, and what are they going to do about it? Um, I think uh, when you had 
Chief Justice John Roberts as the fifth and deciding vote, he was acting as a bit of a restraint. But now that you have six of them, uh, they don't even need his vote. Uh, you're seeing him vote uh, more often uh, with the so-called liberal uh, minority on the court. And that's how radical this court has gotten. So uh, I will certainly be listening tomorrow and we'll try to pick up a little bit of sense of where the court is going. Um, but I don't think uh, this is a good direction for the country. And I don't think it's a good direction for the court, frankly, that's going to lose a lot of legitimacy in the eyes of people as they become more and more political, more and more partisan in their um, decision making. I think people eventually lose confidence in the court. And um, that is uh, an ongoing problem for a democracy that ultimately relies on the rule of law. Right. But these justices might be indifferent to precedent, but they're not indifferent to, I think, the parochial educations they received. You know, uh, Justice Gorsuch went to a parochial Catholic school, a good school, at 8th and Elm in Denver when he was growing up. His mother, one of the first deputy district attorneys in Denver, and then she went to Washington under Reagan. The rest is history. But they are following their faith, and faith is sort of intertwined. You wrote in your book, quote, to compel a woman to complete her pregnancy against her will is to rob her of an essential component of her humanity. And I agree with that at a certain point, but at what point, you know, the other side would, of course, say, Jen Rubin, tell us at what point uh, does the baby have its own rights? And I thought viability was a pretty good point. Well, that's the way it has been for a while. Um, Casey basically stood for the proposition that up until viability, which is somewhere in the 22, 24 weeks, that the state could regulate but not place an undue burden on uh, access to an abortion. Um, and if we're going to throw all that up uh, against the wall and say, well, states can ban abortions um, really from the moment of conception, as your fellow Coloradan wants to do, then we're into a whole nother uh, galaxy. And I think um, American women will be outraged. I think um, the Republican Party um, had always um, benefited from the potential to overturn Roe. They ran on that for decades. Um, and the potential and the um, really ire that they raised against the Supreme Court for having originally uh, held uh, abortion as a uh, as encompassed by the 14th Amendment um, really stood them in good stead politically. It got people agitated and got people uh, engaged. And if they now see what they have wrought, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what even some of their own voters. The polling right now on Roe is that uh, even a substantial number of Republicans don't want to see it go by the wayside. Right. But that's the base of Donald Trump. And he realized that's one thing he could not mess with, pro-life. And then a lot of Jewish people like me said, well, he's okay by Israel. But in the end, I had to reevaluate a lot of things, including the most epic experience I ever had in Washington. I got invited by Jared Polis uh, to go to Bibi Netanyahu's speech, the one that Joe Biden and Obama boycotted. But I was there, and he gave one of the greatest stem winders in Jewish history, and I was loving the guy, cheering him on. I hated the Iran nuke deal. I think you did too. But now I've reassessed Bibi. He's on trial even as we speak. What about you? Have you reassessed that man? I have. I think um, in several respects. One, of course, he's gotten himself into a whole lot of legal problems. And aside from the Iran deal, I think, you know, he had always formed a government with the help of the extreme religious parties. And he put them in a position of authority in Israel, um, which is um, similar to what evangelicals in America want to have, and that is to exercise a veto over all sorts of issues, whether it was allowing women to pray at the uh, Western Wall, whether it was um, who gets to uh, be a Jew, whether it was uh, recognizing marriages, and the stranglehold that they 
exerted on uh, Israel society was, I think, very divisive, um, was not in step with um, most uh, Israelis, catered to a very small segment, and really, I think, drove a wedge between Israel and the diaspora. So I think although he um, always liked to champion um, the diaspora, in fact, I think relations reached um, a nadir under him. And I think um, with a broader coalition now that does not rely upon these super religious parties, um, I think you'll see a uh, mending of um, that breach. And uh, Israel, it's its own country. It's going to make its own decisions on national security. Um, but I think insofar as the relations of the worldwide Jewish people, I think we're better off without him. And I think um, he put strains on the American Jewish relationship in a way that was not healthy. And I think by being so solicitous of Trump, um, he further alienated Democrats um, and made uh, it much more difficult to maintain a bipartisan uh, policy in support of Israel. So I hope his disappearance will allow some of those uh, gaps and those chasms to heal and that we will return to the good old days where we had a very bipartisan uh, policy in support of Israel, in which we um, recognized that uh, our respective democracies and respective national security interests were linked. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm very glad that he's gone. And much to my surprise, this um, very odd coalition um, in Israel with some very disparate facts but factions has managed to figure things out and get along. So uh, that's certainly a, yeah, a pleasant surprise. Right. And I think that's the way forward in America. I had a lot of political opponents on my left in the past, but I'm willing to link up with them in uh, an attempt to defeat Trumpism. And I assume you are too. In your book, Resistance, that title is provocative. You know, back to World War II, is that fair to make it so dramatic? I think so. And, you know, it has a colloquial understanding for the current generations in Star Wars that that was the resistance to. Mm -hmm. And I think the point you make is exactly right. We have to prioritize now democracy and a sense of American values. And that really goes well beyond any policy issue or debate that I have with people. And I think um, we have to look for allies in democracy. And that means defeating a uh, really a party that's lost its grip on reality and has repudiated a lot of what is foundational in America, the respect for the sanctity of elections, the notion that we are an inclusive society, the notion that we're a country of immigrants, all of these things are under assault. And when those fundamental things are at issue, then it behooves the rest of us to put our policy differences aside and uh, make some common cause. Um, I think that's what happened in 2020. I hope that doesn't uh, evaporate in 2022 and going forward, uh, because that's really been the lesson when you see these right-wing strongmen uh, emerge, that if the opposition fractures, um, they will tighten their grip on society. That's what happened in Hungary. That's what happened in a lot of countries that have slipped into very illiberal authoritarian regimes. So hopefully that alliance will persist. You are such a mainstay of the right, never the far right, but you are linked with republicanism. And when you look back on it, do you think, gosh, I made a mistake? I, I align myself with people? And, and I, I'm guilty of some of the same. I, guilt is too harsh of a word. But I have to look back and say, you know, those Republicans, were they always like that? Is there just a thin veneer and then... They like the uh, attacks on women, blacks, minorities, Muslims, Jews. They, they really like it. Is it. Isn't a lot revealed that surprises you? It surprised me. Well, it, certain individuals, it did surprise me. But listen, the party has changed fundamentally. Um, we came from a president in Ronald Reagan who 
supported and the Congress unanimously passed an extension of the Voting Rights Act in 1982. He was in favor of and uh, signed a very liberal immigration bill. Um, this is not the Republican Party that exists now. There have always been elements on the right, and frankly, at times they were in the Democratic Party with uh, George Wallace. There's always been that kind of populist, right-wing, nationalist uh, fervor, but they had never seized control of the party as a whole. And um, now that they have, we see the really disastrous results. And we don't really have a conservative party. There's something conservative about ripping up decades of Supreme Court precedent. There's nothing conservative about trashing elections and resorting to violence. Not conservative positions. And so I think the party, um, which had uh, sort of run out of ideas somewhere in the late 1980s, has now morphed into something quite dangerous and quite different than we have had in America. And it's much more analogous to um, the right-wing parties in Europe, in France or Germany. And they really pose a menace to American democracy. Right, but we only have two parties. Maybe that's part of our problem. But it's shocking to see Republicans we once admired and respected and not stand up against it the way you did. And my gosh, the heat you took... I experienced a little of that, but look at Fox News just in the last week or so with the two guys leaving and Brett Bear. You know, you wonder what is he? What should he and Chris Wallace do? What's your opinion on that? Well, I think they have a responsibility to speak the truth, and there comes a point at which they are simply providing cover for an operation that is not a news operation, as a propaganda outfit, and one quite dangerous that is encouraging people not to get vaccinated, that is um, really pitting groups against one another, that has become a propagandistic um, outlet. And listen, if they feel so compelled that they have no place else to work and they have to make a living there, they can at least be honest with the rest of us and um, call it like they see it and uh, speak out against these ridiculous lies that their colleagues tell them. Um, but I would hope that men who are certainly comfortable in life and who have made a great deal of money would think twice about continuing to work for such an operation. Um, my gosh, it's blood money when you're working for Fox News that encourages people not to get vaccinated, that has pitted uh, people against immigrants and uh, Asian Americans, for example. Um, and at some point you have to live your values. And um, I think it's reprehensible, frankly, that I continue to cash a paycheck from Fox. And I was cashing a paycheck from Salem. And I thought a couple of moderate, decent dudes, kind of Jen Rubin-like conservatives, were Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager and Michael Medved before, until he got booted for not supporting Trump. I mean, what's happened to Dennis Prager? I mean, just Jew to Jew, I thought he was a bright guy. One thing he always said that bothered me was his condemnation of lawyers. The longer I live, the more people say, you know, I hate all lawyers. It's just a cause for suspicion. But you probably knew Dennis Prager, your time in California, and Hugh Hewitt, a fellow columnist who lived for a while in Denver. I know Hugh. What happened to those guys? You know, I go back and forth between thinking that these people are simply craven, um, that they're afraid of their audience, that they're cowed um, by their employers. Um, and that's one explanation. Another explanation is they've lost their minds and actually now believe this rot. Um, and the third is greed. Um, and I think uh, I come down on the side of greed in most instances, that this is the audience they have. This is how they make their living. And they don't have the emotional and financial wherewithal to say enough of this. And in order to um, keep cashing that check, they're saying things that are not only demonstrably untrue, but dangerous and um, destructive of American democracy. Let me offer a little defense. Since I considered both of them friends at one point, I think Hugh Hewitt is so pro-life that that affects him in a lot of ways. Because say what you will about Trump and what a liar and a bigot. He did deliver this pro-life stuff we're talking about. And as for Prager, 
He started that Prager U and then Google and others took him off for saying this or that. And he got in a war with the left and he's just seeking allies and and it made him go a little more sugar. Does that make sense? Perhaps, although I am skeptical of people who say they are pro-life and support a party that um, does not want people to get vaccinated, does not want people to take um, precautions to prevent a deadly disease from spreading, um, and who think um, suddenly that they're all about um, my body, my choice when it's a mask, but not when it's about a woman uh, carrying a, uh, a pregnancy to uh, full term. So I'm a little bit suspicious of that argument. Um, but I also think that you have to make some choices here. Um, just because you like one policy, does that justify destroying American democracy? Does that justify spreading hatred and racism, xenophobia? Uh, does that justify January 6th? Um, my goodness, can't you still advocate your position and not go whole hog, not prostitute yourself to a party that is so destructive. So I find those explanations, um, perhaps they are accurate. That's why they do it. But I find them unpersuasive, put it that way. Oh, boy, did you make a great case. What a great prosecutor you would have been. You piled it on. I I really didn't make a hard break from Trump until Charlottesville. You did it before then. Everybody kind of reaches their own breaking point. What was yours exactly? I think it was the point at which the Republican Party clearly was not going to choose someone else as the nominee. And a party that was going to embrace someone like Trump was not a party I could be any part of. Um, And I realized, I think, quite early on that had he um, been defeated, that the Republican Party had a chance to kind of find its way again and um, recalibrate some of its policies. But with him in the lead, it was a path to destruction and it that was exactly the case how did you know how did you know did you have some inside info or was it just your number one in your class education no i just i just watched him and listened to it and i took him seriously um you know when people reveal themselves you have to take them seriously and i actually think part of that was my Jewish background, um, that, you know, we've developed a little bit of an ear um, that when people start saying dangerous things about immigrants, when people start saying dangerous things about the rule of law, dangerous things about democracy, you should pay attention um, because those are some pretty bad warning signs. And I think um, I did take him seriously. And I think I also observed among uh former colleagues and compatriots, um, the degree to which they were sort of turning themselves inside out in order to justify this guy. And that was just not something uh, I felt capable of doing. Um, and uh, I but, think, but, but just uh, take, take the issue of pro-choice, pro-life, and you are uh, a, a great advocate for the pro-choice policy, which I embrace, but I thought Donald Trump would move that way. I thought this is the way you can capture... A permanent majority. Was I just stupid to think like that? Well, perhaps you were overly optimistic. Um, Listen, he made pretty clear, and as you pointed out, that was the way he was going to take over the Republican Party, was catering to that segment of the electorate. So um, he was going to dance with the people that brung him. Um, And I think you have to um, sometimes take these people at their word. Right. Um, and uh, I think what's sort of scary is, is Trump is no longer in office. The parties continue to get worse and worse. Um, they're getting crazier, not more sane as time goes on. So I think... But isn't, um, isn't he still pulling the strings every primary? I mean, anybody who goes against him is going to get a primary challenger endorsed by Trump. He is, but that power is ceded to him by elected leaders who don't want to stand up to him. It's ceded to him by a base that has now become so radicalized and irrational that that's what they want. Um, So I think um, this is the party they want. This is the party they've got. And it's not a party that I want any part of. Uh, So I think... Neither do I. uh, uh, you know, I I think there are issues in which people of goodwill can disagree. I think uh, whether it's taxes or trade or foreign policy decisions, um, there are people of goodwill who simply see things differently um, and are 
concerned about different things. But when it comes to a fundamental issue of democracy, respect for elections, uh, I don't think there can be a mere difference of opinion. Um, I think you either believe in democracy and an inclusive American society or you don't. And uh, that is uh, a firm line for me. I believe in the rule of law. I believe there's one man who could save us, but he seems to be a weakling, a weak stick. Merrick Garland, what's going on there? My God, you're a lawyer. Why can't you be AG? Why don't you be more aggressive? And can this country really move forward without resolving what really happened on January 6th? I think we can't um, let it go by the wayside. Um, I am willing to suspend judgment because right now he has the House of Representatives that is essentially gathering all the information he's going to need if he then decides to go forward with a prosecution. So he's conducting at least at this point the way uh, the case, the way you would conduct a mob prosecution. You start with the lowest level guys, um, you prosecute those to the full extent of the law, and you work your way up the organization. And it's a very unusual situation where um, he doesn't have to do too much um, discovery on his own because you have these people who are now, you know, several hundred people apparently giving interviews under oath to Congress. He's going to have access to those. We now learn today that Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, is cooperating as well. This is going to be a treasure trove of information. So I think, uh, at least for now, I'm willing to suspend judgment, but I will reach a very harsh conclusion if he decides after this mound of evidence um, that uh, he is not going to prosecute Trump or those closest to him. Um, We either have the rule of law or we don't, and we either punish people for trying to extort election officials, as he did in Georgia, or we don't. So I would hope that um, once the facts are gathered, that he will make the right decision. I am traveling to the East Coast next week to watch the rule of law in action. This trial is getting hot. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is defended by one of my friends, who was just a guest uh, where you are, Jeff Paliuka. He's defending Ms. Maxwell, among other defense attorneys. And it's now come out that Donald Trump, amongst others, William Jefferson Clinton, they were on the Lolita Express. You've written the great book about women saving democracy. Is that the problem? Are men compromised by their penises? Uh, is that why we need women in charge? Well, I think they're compromised by a lot of things, but I do think a great measure of a society is how they treat women. And whether it's uh, in a third world country or whether it's the United States, I think if you have a ruling group that is disrespectful, dismissive of women, um, that seeks to put them under the thumb of uh, men that you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble for women. You're going to have trouble for the rest of society. So um, it's a very troubling um, development. One of the reasons why the Republican Party, I think, um, is so uh, really unsuited for American society in the 21st century. Um, But uh, the good news is uh, women make up more than half the electorate. So if they get their act together and vote, um, we can chase some of these people out of office. Jen Rubin, you've been so generous with your time, and I don't want to put down Joe Biden because what's the alternative, Trumpism? But I do sometimes worry, especially when I see slow motion pursuit of justice, that they have each other. They know too many secrets, and I worry about compromise. And as my old man, a blessed memory, would put it to me, you know, Some people are on the take. Some people are on the straight and narrow. And are are women better in this regard? And do you ever worry that Joe Biden might be compromised in some significant way? No, I don't worry that Joe Biden has been compromised. I sometimes worry that Joe Biden isn't aggressive enough, that he um, doesn't fully appreciate um, the degree to which uh, the Republicans will destroy American society and that he has tried to be um, sort of above it all and tried to um, stay out of the political fray. I think that's um, really 
an impossibility so long as the Republican Party is behaving as it does. I would like to, him to be more pointed, more aggressive in pointing out their lies and their um, really anti-democratic behavior. Um, I don't think it's a matter of uh, compromise um, either with him or with Merrick Garland. Um, I simply hope that they um, fully appreciate the danger that we face um, from a party that has gone badly, badly astray. Um, but and that danger is upon us. 2022 elections around the corner, people starting to run for president. I'd say there's probably... I haven't consulted the betting odds, but probably even money that Donald Trump will be president in 2024. And some smart people say it's all over with if he gets the Republican nomination because, you know, he's going to claim he won the club championship no matter what he shot on the course. So isn't isn't the problem imminent? And uh, and what can we do? You can vote. You can give to causes that support democracy. You can uh, run for office yourself. You can support people who do. Um, the gravamon of my book is that democracy is a participatory sport, that uh, it's not what other people do. It's what we all have to do. And um, I think that uh, Americans, um, if they turn out to vote, if they keep their focus, if Democrats um, can get their act together and get their agenda through, um, that um, they still have quite a bit of fight in them. And my hope would be that um, we um, pull ourselves back from the brink. We did it in 2020. And uh, hopefully that same spirit will endure. But thank you so much for having me, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Jen Rubin, I can't thank you enough. Really appreciate your time and happy Hanukkah. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Well, hello, Troubadour Dave Gunders. Zetsebeck. Do you know what Zetsebeck means? I'm about to. Means sit down. I heard that a lot as a kid. Often not that nicely said. Zetsebek. Sounds Russian. Yiddish. I figured. 
But you Yiddish know, is a mix of so many different languages, right. right? Correct. German, primarily. Have you ever heard the old English expression that you cannot teach an old dog new tricks? I think I've heard that. I think I just taught Ico a new trick. You know what it was? How to relieve oneself of a collar. Oh, yeah. She lost her collar on a walk the other day. We don't know how that happened. But I taught her Zetzebeck. Oh. Yeah. And she responds to that? She will when I use the appropriate hand motion. I think she will. But Ken, you've got an even older dog, Riley. Could you teach him a new trick? Um, Riley, at this point, I think, um, is just lying on his side and wagging his tail when I come into the room. That's about all I can expect of you, him. You cannot teach him anything at this point? Well, no, he's, he's a smart dog. I could probably teach him okay, something. Okay, well, I'd like you to give it a go. I don't want to make it personal, but... I figure you've got some new tricks up your sleeve, like this beautiful song, Falling Rain. I've come to identify all of your tricks of music writing. You want to hear them? Go ahead. Okay, if you listen to the beat of Falling Rain, and I did, and I loved it, it's a rainstorm that gradually picks up in intensity as the song goes along. Am I correct so far? Sounds good to me. Okay, and the backup singer is? Rachel Gunders. Beautiful. Beautiful. And as a musician, can I ask you, you've been doing it for over four decades, right? Five now? Well, I mean, I've been playing since I, you know, I learned guitar at 11 and now I'm 68. So, yes. Okay, let me ask you this. Um, When you hear rain and a storm, do you hear music? I hear them, you know, I hear um, it, it is a music of sorts. Absolutely. I don't necessarily hear guitars or piano. That's a, that's, that's a problem for trans, translating to a musical instrument. But. Now, now, I love your song, Falling Rain, but did it occur to you to put in some thunder? It did occur to me to put in thunder. Have you done that with any of your songs? Yes, I've put in thunder. Okay. Because Gar- it worked for Garth Brooks. I it, don't even know if you oh, heard about it. Did it? That. No, oh, it, was, yeah. it was when I was younger and, and doing my, and you know, uh, starting out, I guess, in my songwriting. And I kind of had that temptation on a few songs, which I followed through with. Lately, I think that it's the kind of thing that's really not necessary. It's, not, it's, it's too literal um, to say, oh, there's thunder. And then to hear, you know. Uh, uh, I'm talking know. just in the background. Oh, I know you're talking about that. But even in the background, it's still a very literal interpretation. Even a loud clap might be good. But this is a gentle song. In fact, it's it's kind of a sad song with soothing elements to it. Wouldn't you agree? It is, but it's also a a redemption song of a relationship. Okay. It's It's about someone who's lost hope. At one point, and has is regaining hope for and for and their... because they are so distraught, they're seeking answers in the occult. Yes, yes, a fortune teller, a, a fortune crystal teller. ball. Right, is that kind of a metaphor for QAnon or something like that? Hardly. But when people go mashuga, they can start looking for other sources, right? right. And this is a hard sick fella. Mm-hmm. I love the imagery. You got an umbrella to keep you dry, but you're crying, so you're getting wet. Right. You listen to the words oh, again. I listen to all the words. <laughs> How often do you listen to your own songs? Not as often as you do. I'm busy writing new ones. I know, but your album, Troubadour, 17 hit songs. I bet I've listened to it four or five times. Have you listened to it that much? Well, in the effort of making it. I know, but but since it's been made. No, I'm tired of it now. (laughs) You know, you make them and, you know, you're you're done. Do you listen to your show, Craig? No, I don't like to look back. I mean, I do just to make sure the quality is there. But when I tell you we're going to use Falling Rain this week, do you need a refresher or it's all right there in your mental Rolodex? Um, It's there in bits and pieces. (laughs) I know. I got asked about a famous case that I prosecuted 30 years ago or so, and uh, bits and pieces. It's amazing. But then it does come back to you, even as I talk about it, right? It comes back to you. Right. And do you have any idea why we're using falling rain this week? We're in a drought, Craig. We need the moisture. We need the moisture. And um, yeah, I mean, there's 
you know, we're we're used to dry spells, uh, but this is this is pushing it, and I I start to worry about snowpack over the winter. That's going to be so necessary to fill our reservoirs come spring. I know it. It's not right. I was up in Fort Collins on a case, and I stopped to play nine holes at Collindale, and some water hazards don't have any water in them. Oh. That helps if you put one right in there. You can. I bet our. I haven't been to our Kent Kent Lake, um, which we call Near Death Lake because of your because of your um, experience there. Right, and you laugh about it, but, but go ahead. I almost died. And you I, didn't help. And um, I, but I bet you that water's receding seriously too. Right, but that's not the only reason why we're doing it. Oh, did you hear on the subject of moisture? Obviously, no snow. What does that do for a skier like you? Well, I, I mean, I worry about the ski industry. It seems like, boy, they're beset by so many problems. Don't you get money back on your pass or something like that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> That's oh, the idea. I... That's they need they need that income, and so no people who buy passes they're committing, and it's not too late. I mean, let's not let's not give up on the season, but it sure is. It's a late start. In the last three quarters of a year or so, less than two inches of moisture in Denver. That ain't right. What do you think's going on? Well, remember last April when we had that three feet of snow or whatever it was? I mean, you know, storms will happen. Um, and so I don't like to read into too much to this, but obviously climate change is playing a part here. All right. Now, here's another reason for your song. Are you ready? Go. Maybe you heard this is Hanukkah. I've been lighting the candles and singing every night. I know, but you didn't say happy Hanukkah. I didn't say it back to you. But what does that have to do with your song? Well, happy Han- Hanukkah, of course, is about the miracle of, of uh, light. Well, the, it's a festival of light, but the miracle of um, there being um, a, a shortage of oil to light the lamps um, when, when, and, uh, and dare I say, what is oil when you boil it down? Moisture. This little moisture lasted and no, that's a reach. I've that, got something that's, better. That's a big stretch, Craig. I know. And I, and I usually go with you on those. No, no, I've got a better one. Okay. All right. But let's go back to the falling rain, your song, our drought. What did they used to do when there was a drought? What did Native Americans do? Well, migrate. Well, they did that, but first they gave it a good try with the rain dance, right? Right. Music. Right. And I bet there are all sorts of musical entreaties in our peeps. I'm the sure. The Hebrews. Yeah, sure. Then it wasn't one of the major prayers for rain. We need some rain. Or we're not going to have a harvest. We're not going to be able to eat. How are we going to make a living? I bet there were a bunch of a bunch of goats and and, and sheep that lost their lives. Like that. And and we've been struggling forever. But there are things to look forward to, like Hanukkah. It's so early this year, people. You know, to be over before most Gentiles realize we even celebrated it. Right. Right. Have you gotten happy Hanukkah greetings as you go about town? Yes, the the uh, flight attendant on the on on the uh, on our flight back from Mexico said happy Hanukkah, which was nice. But typically, no, just my Jewish friends will say that. You know what? The highlight of my Hanukkah has been so far. Your sons. Well, that was good, but they left right as Hanukkah was beginning. That was more a Thanksgiving thing. Okay. I was thinking of my buddy Dave Gunders. Oh. Our walk. And I think we sang uh, a Hanukkah song. I want to. I want to follow through later on with some more. And do you remember what song we sang? We sang. We sang. Oh, we sang more Atzur. Yeah, more Atzur. You should yeah, yeah. maybe in English since this is an English podcast. Rock of Ages. What's that got to do with falling rain? There I go. I'm going to sing. Go on. Make, it's Hanukkah. Okay, if you've got the second verse, go ahead. Or if you want to harmonize. Rock of ages, let our song praise thy saving power. Thou amidst the raging storm. Storm. Okay. Whilst our sheltering tower, furious they assailed us. But thine arm availed us, 
and thy word broke their sword when our own strength failed us. And thy word broke their sword when our own strength failed us. See, there's a storm. Shelter from the storm. And you have storm in your song, Falling Rain. Thanks for harmonizing with me. That's got to be painful to work with. You know, just a guy who can't even keep a note. I can do better than that. We we sing the blessings. It's a tradition. I think I'm better in Hebrew. No, that's not. All right. Okay. Hanukkah 2021. And uh, it's just a pleasure having this song. I think it's one of your best, even though it's not that upbeat. Does the relationship work out? I mean, what does the fortune teller say? She says, yes, you just had to get through some stormy weather. Get That's through all. the storm. Dave right. Gunders, our troubadour. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, Craig. Thank you. Here, one more thing. Iko, Skylar too. Zetzebeck. Here's Dave Gunders with Falling Rain. Good dog. Raining hard under my umbrella Couldn't keep me dry Cause I was crying Couldn't hide my tears Baby, I was trying She said no need to keep pretending Sometimes in love Got to find your happy ending Forgive her lies Forgive her flirting I see her now She's hurting now Here in the falling rain Here for us weeping Try to run, you won't get far Just for some fairy
Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, did I tell you that would be good? My goodness, Dave Gunders, every week he delivers, especially on Hanukkah. He almost saved my bad singing of Rock of Ages. I don't know if there's anything that will save that. Jennifer Rubin, thanks for giving me so much time and insight. She's amazing. You can see why she was number one in her class and why I'm no singer, but I do love Hanukkah and I like singing even if I can't sing well. And here goes Rock of Ages because I think I can do it better maybe in Hebrew. Motsur Yeshua Tilachona El Shabbat Tikon Betefilati Visham Todon Isabeach Len Tachin Matbeach Mitzor Hamnabeach Azeg Mor Bishir Mizmor Chanukah tam is beach, Ozeg more bishim is Hey, I hope you have a great holiday season. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.